It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In New York, I'm John Fassman. And in London, I'm Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. The UN's biodiversity summits get less attention than their climate change powwows. But biodiversity is crucial to a functioning planet. The latest meeting ended yesterday in Montreal with an historic agreement that still left many unsatisfied. And it's time for our language columnist to select The Economist's Word of the Year. Some years, that's hard when the roiling of news and culture doesn't really throw up any worthy new words. 2022 has presented the opposite problem. But first... On January 6th, 2021, having lost the presidential election, Donald Trump rallied thousands of his supporters in Washington, D.C., and encouraged them to march on the U.S. Capitol. Right here, we're going to walk down to the Capitol. And we're going to cheer on our brave senators and congressmen and women. And we're probably not going to be cheering so much for some of them. What happened when they got there was one of the darkest moments in recent American history. Hordes of rioters stormed the congressional building, trashing offices and leaving lawmakers holed up in fear of their lives. For months, a congressional committee has been hearing testimony from witnesses about what happened that day and who should be held accountable. Yesterday, two years to the day after Mr. Trump tweeted that there would be a wild protest in Washington on January 6th, the committee delivered another blow to add to the former president's mounting legal issues. Well, the January 6th committee held its ninth and final public hearing. And the big news coming out of the hearing was really that they've made, as expected, a referral to the Justice Department, Donald Trump on four counts. James Bennett writes our Lexington column. And the one that I find most jaw-dropping is inciting or assisting an insurrection. Anyone who incites others to engage in rebelling assists them in doing so, or gives aid and comfort to those engaged in insurrection is guilty of a federal crime. The committee believes that more than sufficient evidence exists for a criminal referral of former President Trump for assisting or aiding and comforting those at the Capitol who engaged in a violent attack on the United States. I mean, we know that for some time that they've accumulated evidence that they felt justified such a charge. But it's so remarkable that for the first time in history, a congressional committee is taking this step. 
The other three charges are obstruction of an official proceeding of Congress, conspiracy to defraud the United States, which is, of course, in reference to his repeated claims that the election had been stolen from him, and conspiracy to make a false statement. Before we get to the details of the charges, remind us of the events that that led to them. The major provocation for these charges and for the existence of this committee was the attack on the United States Capitol on January 6th. But what the committee has done is to show that that event was premeditated, that it wasn't a merely a spontaneous outpouring of anger by some supporters of Donald Trump. But according to the committee's timeline and the interviews that they've made public so far was the result of a multi-pronged effort by Donald Trump to overturn the election that he pursued several different avenues, courts obviously where he failed, putting pressure on states to overturn their own results, putting pressure on Mike Pence, the vice president, not to certify the final results. And then, according to the committee, inciting the mob in their account to go down and try to directly interrupt the counting of the electoral votes. You know, one Capitol Police officer who was trying to resist the rioters that day testified before the committee about what she saw. What I saw was just a a war scene. It it was something like I'd seen out of the movies. I, I, I couldn't believe my eyes. There were officers on the ground, um, you know, they were bleeding, they were throwing up, they were, you know, they had, uh, I mean, I saw friends with blood all over their faces. I was slipping in people's blood. Um, The mob ransacked politicians' offices, including the office of the House Speaker, Nancy Pelosi, and it attempted to smash its way into the House chamber itself. So that's what happened on January 6th, 2021. I wonder if you can take us through now each of the charges the committee recommended against President Trump. The first count for obstructing an official proceeding of the United States relates to the attempt to interfere with Congress's count of electoral college votes, um, which is normally a very routine proceeding by which members of Congress gather and essentially accept the electoral vote counts that have been referred from the states. The claim of the committee is that by dispatching the mob to the Capitol, Donald Trump was trying to upend that proceeding. Another charge is the charge of conspiracy to defraud the United States. And that's the claim that Donald Trump was very deliberately spreading the lie that he actually won the 2020 election. And the committee has released a really interesting document, which is essentially the introduction to the full report that we're expecting on Wednesday. And one of the things they provide in there is a really effective, I think, timeline that is a left-hand column that shows what Donald Trump was being told by his advisors about the reality of how he'd lost the election. And then the right-hand column is how, subsequent to those messages, he was nevertheless continuing to claim the opposite, that he in fact won, that even specific things that he was being told um, were not fraud, things that didn't happen, he was continuing to claim did happen. So what they're trying to show there is he had guilty knowledge. He knew that what he was saying was false, which is a critical thing for DOJ to demonstrate if, in fact, they did decide to move forward. And what about the other charges? There's the charge of insurrection, which is 
essentially what the House impeached Donald Trump for in the wake of the January 6th attack. And the Senate came quite close to convicting him, but in the end did not. The committee says they've concluded that he violated the criminal statute that covers this by giving, quote unquote, aid and comfort to the people who stormed the Capitol. The insurrection charge carries a particular risk for Donald Trump because if he were actually tried and ultimately convicted of having committed that particular crime, he'd be unable ever to stand for office again in the United States. But it should be said, we are a long way away from that. And then the other charge is conspiracy to make a false statement, which is a reference to the fake electoral college ballots that he solicited and his people solicited, and then were then submitted to several federal government agencies. I want to pick up on something you just said in that answer. You made a reference to if the DOJ decides to pursue charges. I think that's a crucial point. The January 6th committee is a legislative body, not a law enforcement one. It can't bring charges. What is the actual substance of what it has done? Will the DOJ prosecute on the January 6th committee's recommendation? They won't simply act on the committee's recommendations. The Justice Department has been conducting its own investigation into this for some time. No doubt the committee's referral will put more pressure on the Department of Justice. But a prosecutor has a higher standard than the committee does for bringing charges. According to the guidelines of the Justice Department, prosecutor would have to really believe they're going to win a conviction that will stand up on appeal. And that's puts a much, much higher burden, I think, on DOJ than certainly the committee itself you know, was under. Kevin McCarthy made what turned out to be a terrible mistake, which was to refuse to cooperate with the committee, refuse to put any Republicans sympathetic to Donald Trump on the committee. And as a result, the committee was able to conduct what was really a pretty prosecutorial series of hearings without any voices pleading Donald Trump's case or pressing back against the witnesses. And the prosecutors, as they are weighing the evidence, are going to be thinking very differently about how it would stand up in court. The committee was able to stitch together a very, very compelling narrative, but that's a different exercise than the one that prosecutors would be faced with. So given that, what is the actual impact of what the January 6th committee has done? Look, John, I think there's no question the committee has increased Donald Trump's legal jeopardy. We don't know by how much, but I think really its impact has been political and may in the end be more political than legal. I think one way to think about the effect the committee has had is to consider the counterfactual. You know, let's say there had been no committee. I think it would have been certainly much easier for Donald Trump and a lot of his Republican supporters to move on from January 6th. And the committee has really prevented Americans from looking away from what happened that day. And was the committee's work only about Donald Trump himself or were there others they recommended be charged? They've also made a referral to the Justice Department for John Eastman, who was Donald Trump's lawyer for purposes of considering how to get the election overturned on two counts also for obstructing a proceeding. And they've made recommendations to the House Ethics Committee that four sitting congresspeople be considered for ethics violations for refusing to respond 
to their subpoenas. One of those is Kevin McCarthy, the House Republican leader, who's now struggling to get himself elected speaker. Uh, what has Donald Trump had to say about all this? So far, he's only put out one comment on True Social, which was to take a kind of irrelevant whack at Liz Cheney, the Republican leader of the committee, noting that she lost her election by 40 points, which is not exactly news. So earlier in this talk, James, you said that the committee had increased the legal and political pressure on Donald Trump. Are there other sources of legal jeopardy he finds himself in? Yeah, Donald Trump is under tremendous legal pressure right now. There's the continuing investigation in the state of Georgia into whether he tried to interfere in the counting of votes there. He was taped by the Secretary of State there asking him to find more votes for him, and that has been at the center of that investigation. He's also under investigation by DOJ for possibly having spirited away classified documents. He continues to be under investigation in New York State, and he's facing various civil suits as well. And after a very long legal battle, the House Ways and Means Committee managed to get a hold of Donald Trump's tax returns, which he has refused to release since he became a candidate. And there's a possibility that the committee will decide to release those returns publicly. All right, James, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, John. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Every year, the world gathers for the COP climate summits, the primary forum for the world's governments to address one of the greatest threats facing the planet. But there's another COP, which aims to protect the planet's biodiversity and ecosystems. And while it doesn't get as much attention as its climate change sibling, it's just as critical. And yesterday, at an early morning session after two weeks of hard negotiations, a deal of sorts was reached. Almost all the countries in the world have just agreed to a global framework for biodiversity at COP15, which is the United Nations Biodiversity Summit in Montreal. Rachel Dobbs is a news editor at The Economist. In a very, very late night session after days of very intense negotiations, they reached a deal and it is the most comprehensive and cohesive global agreement to halt the damage that humans have done to nature and Earth's ecosystems so far. So they reached an agreement. Tell us a bit about the highlights of the agreement. What did they agree to? So the main mission of the agreement is to take urgent action to halt and reverse biodiversity loss to put nature on a path to recovery by 2030. That is obviously a little bit vague. And so the really headline deal from this is something that's been dubbed 30 by 30, which is a commitment to protect 30% of the world's oceans and 30% of the world's land 
for nature and for biodiversity by 2030. That's up from 17% of land and 10% of marine areas, which are currently protected. Within that, there were also promises and targets to slash harmful subsidies, so things that damage nature, like fishing or fossil fuels and certain forms of agriculture. There are also targets around preserving ecosystem integrity, so preserving the ecosystems that are still intact and haven't been fragmented or degraded by humans, although that admittedly now is only 3% of the world's ecosystems. And there are also commitments from governments to try and encourage businesses to properly assess the way in which they have a negative impact on biodiversity and for large multinational businesses to make disclosures about nature-related risks that they face. So that hopefully should send a reasonably strong signal to financial markets and the private sector that the world is now taking biodiversity more seriously than it did before. I want to get into the specifics of the deal a bit later, but let me ask a first principles question. Why does biodiversity matter? So biodiversity is often presented as this kind of aesthetic, very nice to have thing, but that is not actually crucial. So, you know, the idea that nature is beautiful and should be preserved for being beautiful and there are sort of awe-inspiring animals and stuff out there. That is all true. And also there is absolutely value in nature in and of itself. A lot of people, including me, think that humans have a responsibility towards the other life forms that they share the planet with. But biodiversity is also incredibly crucial for absolutely everything that humans do and that humans need to survive, from food to water to the materials that we use for clothes or for building. Huge amount of our medicines come from ecosystems and natural life. Biodiversity also plays an unbelievably critical role in stabilizing the planet. Plants and animals and oceans, they absorb about half of the carbon dioxide that humans produce each year and so are instrumental in offsetting the really worst excesses of human behavior and actually are one of the reasons why climate change has not yet been quite as destructive as it might have been. But despite that, ecosystems are extremely degraded. Species are currently going extinct at the highest and fastest rate in human history. Almost every habitat in the world is now altered or affected by human behaviour like agriculture or building or pollution. And climate change is just drastically changing the environmental and thermal niche in which these ecosystems evolved and is having really, really damaging effects. So given how imperiled the world's biodiversity is, how optimistic should we be about this latest deal? So on one level, this is definitely historic and important. This is the result of kind of four years of really serious negotiations. It is the most comprehensive and cohesive global framework that we've got. However, causes for that optimism to be a little bit dampened is that what is really, really needed is sort of measurable, actionable global targets against which countries' actions can be judged and with various metrics that can be sort of independently assessed. This deal is still too vague on almost all of those. And part of that is problems with measuring biodiversity in particular, but a lot of that is just that the specifics of this deal are really quite wishy-washy in some important areas. And Rachel, without getting too far into the weeds, what were the hurdles leading up to this agreement? Why was it so difficult for countries to reach an agreement? Well, as with almost all environmental negotiations, the critical issue that it comes down to is financing. And specifically, rich countries giving poor countries the help that they need to sort of implement 
the ways to correct or repair damage which has overwhelmingly been done by rich countries. We saw this in climate negotiations in terms of countries having to make certain sacrifices to cut their emissions, despite the fact that rich countries have got rich on the back of burning fossil fuels. In terms of biodiversity, rich countries, you know, their land is already degraded. The areas with the most intact and protectable and important biodiversity now are overwhelmingly developing countries. And global biodiversity agreements like this, the point is to protect the 30% of land with the most important biodiversity. But then if you have those kind of mechanisms in place, rich countries are saying you have to do this. What does that mean for poor countries? Are they not allowed to develop the land that they have, what happens to the communities living in those countries. And also, if they have to protect those areas, how are they going to be sort of financially remunerated in order, A, to be able to do it in the first place, and also, B, to stop it being a drag on their actual growth? So that was an ongoing, very difficult debate. So biodiversity hasn't received the same attention as climate change. Why is that? What have been the main challenges up until now in protecting biodiversity? The climate system, which is obviously, you know, fantastically complicated, is actually quite simple in comparison to biodiversity and natural systems. So the climate system operates on the principles of physics. It can be boiled down to essentially kind of one major input, which is the amount of greenhouse gases, particularly carbon dioxide, that are released into the atmosphere, and one major output, which is rising global temperatures. The fact that it's governed by physics also means that it can be modelled quite effectively. None of that applies with biodiversity. Biodiversity is very complicated on multiple layers, and that makes it very hard to reach really deliberate, understandable targets like, you know, keeping global temperatures between 1.5 and 2 degrees target that came out of Paris and doing that by cutting emissions to as close to zero as possible in the second half of this century. You know, those are difficult to do, but they are easy to understand. And one target and rule there applies everywhere in the world in a way that it just doesn't to biodiversity. You know, what is good for one ecosystem is not necessarily good for another. So given the difficulty in reaching this agreement and the difficulty in sort of measuring biodiversity, what has to happen now? So countries now have until 2024 to sort of hash out some of the details of this agreement. They need to work out how this stuff is going to be measured. They need to work out financing questions and where the money is actually going to come from. They need to commit to quite a lot more kind of scientific assessment so that you actually have the adequate amounts of data to understand what is going on. And then you need to have set, sensible roadmaps for making that happen. And those questions of implementation and how it's carried out will be the really critical thing that actually means whether or not this kind of global deal is a success and actually makes any kind of progress towards reversing or correcting biodiversity loss in the way that we need, both for the sake of biodiversity on its own and also for the sake of things like managing the climate crisis. All right, Rachel, thanks so much for stopping by today. Thanks, John. Sometimes the story of a year is easy to identify in a single word or two. One word, of course, sums up 2020, pandemic. And in 2021, our word of the year was vaccines. They allowed lots of people in the world to leave their lockdown lives behind. So now, the nominees for our word of the year 2022. 
Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the show the Economist's language columnist, Lane Green. Hi, Jason. We find ourselves here at the end of the year again. How hard was it this time to come up with the, the word of the year? It was very hard this year. It's hard almost every year, but most years it's because there are too few good candidates. And this year I actually thought there were quite a few interesting words. And so I had to think hard about which one for me was the real word of the year. So I've actually come up with some categories to help me break it down a bit. Okay, uh, but let's move to the first category of nominees. Well, climate change is the big story of the era. And this year threw up a couple of new terms. They're not brand new, but they came to prominence, I think, in 2022 properly. Extreme weather led to many countries introducing what they're calling cooling centers, places where you could sit in an air-conditioned tent and drink cold drinks and cool yourself off in these really record-breaking hot days that we had through much of the Northern Hemisphere's summer. Then as winter has set in, we've got the exact opposite. and People are talking about warm banks, which are the same thing, except you show up in a place that's heated and get a cup of tea. More to the policy front of things, at the COP27 climate change summit this year in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt, we saw a new term come to the center stage, which is loss and damage. This is the idea that rich countries whose industrialization has largely caused climate change so far promise to set up a fund to redress the harms that they have done or are definitely going to do in the future in poorer countries. And this puts loss and damage as a new pillar in climate change politics. Okay, climate change, clearly a big story, but not the only story of 2022. What's the next category? Well, naturally, I think Russia's invasion of Ukraine was the story of 2022. This has led to a lot of linguistic innovation and linguistic learning, I would say. For example, newscasters have had to practice how to say previously unfamiliar place names, uh, places like Kharkiv and Zaporizhia. And you'll also hear about people who previously hadn't talked a lot about military affairs now having to talk about things like man pads and HIMARS and NASAMs, these, these weapon systems that are proving so crucial. These are, of course, acronyms for names of weapon systems that have lots of different words in them. Okay, climate change, war in Ukraine, what other categories we got? Well, I always look at business, finance, and economic terms. And obviously, the war in Ukraine led to a lot of financial and economic chaos this year in 2022. And in particular, the rise in energy costs that fed through into the rise of lots of other costs and, and a year of big inflation. The winner in this subcategory is, is a pretty obvious one. Shrinkflation is a great word in the sense that it's obvious what it means, kind of, if you know any of the context at all. It includes almost all of the words shrink and inflation. And it's that process whereby companies hide their price increases by keeping prices constant, but by making the products a little bit smaller. But we haven't yet reached the territory of word of the year stuff, I'm gathering. Well, let's start with some other choices. For example, Oxford Dictionaries, for the first time in their history, opened their process up to a public vote. So they chose three semifinalists, which were hashtag I stand with, the metaverse, and goblin mode. And the people have spoken, and they have spoken for goblin mode, which is a sort of purported state in which folks indulge their kind of laziest or most selfish habits. I guess goblin mode is kind of a word of the year after years of 
COVID and recession and now inflation, people are very often saying they just feel tired. They just can't really keep up appearances anymore. And I guess that means a lot of people are finding themselves in goblin mode. Now, I was one of those people who had never heard of goblin mode before it was announced as a finalist. I'm of the skeptical camp wondering if we're going to be looking back in five years and still saying goblin mode, much less remembering why it was indicative of this year in particular. But another product of the sort of COVID era and all of its social changes that it's wrought is my choice for Word of the Year. All right, let's see if we can't get a drum roll in here. There we go. All right, Lane, what is your Word of the Year? For 2022, my Word of the Year is hybrid work. As a word or as a phrase, you might say, hybrid work is no great creative coinage. It's no beauty. But the post-COVID period has made companies decide when they should let their employees work from home and when they should be either encouraged or required to come in. Most companies haven't gone to one extreme or the other, but have rather decided that people will have some time at home and some time in the office. And though it's not a beautiful term, I think it will absolutely reshape everything from our cities to careers to our family lives and our homes and how we spend our free time as well. And unlike many words of the year past, I think this is with us to stay. We're going to be dealing with its consequences for a very long time to come. And so that for me is ample qualification for this word of the year. Lane, thanks very much for your time. It's always a joy to see you at these award ceremonies. Thank you, Jason. And we'll see you at 2023's word of the year. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. Drop us a line at podcasts at economist.com. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow. This is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.